Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan and I'm here with my co-host Gabia. Hello. So this week we are going to be discussing Batman and Batman Returns, the original Batman films by director Tim Burton, perhaps the best Batman movies to date. Both star Michael Keaton as a different version of Bruce Wayne than the action hero we see today in a surreal and stylized version of Gotham City. Before we get into our discussion of Batman, however, we have a couple of announcements. The first is that we are going to be doing our first episode on a book, which is very exciting. It's going to be on John le Carre's new uh, George Smiley tie-in kind of novel, A Legacy of Spies. Um, this is a very exciting book because it is the first novel he's written that's sort of related to that group of characters in a long time. It is sort of a sequel to a spy, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, and we will be discussing it on October 3rd. So if you would like to read that before then, that would be great. Um, it's we not will... a long book. It's like 250 yeah. pages long. I just read the first third in one sitting and it's awesome. So <laughs> Yeah, I've got it. I'm really excited to read it. Uh, if you don't want to read A Spy That Came In From The Cold first, there is a film adaptation that we have both seen. You can brush up on that. And obviously watch Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is not necessary, but is a really, really good movie. So yes. we recommend it. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll be discussing that as well. I've read a ton of LeCarrie's books. I'm a huge fan. Um, so we'll be sort of getting into all that kind of stuff in that episode. Again, that is October 3rd, and we will be reminding you of that every week between now and then. And then, Gab, I believe you have another little announcement before we get into this discussion. Yeah, I actually started another podcast. Um, it's at The Daily Dot and it's called The Parsec Podcast. It's going to come out every two weeks. It's a kind of general geek culture discussion show. So sometimes it's going to be uh, episodes a little bit like Overinvested where I discuss a new movie or TV show or whatever with some other writers or whoever. Um, and other times it will be a kind of convention panel situation or I'll be interviewing an interesting person. So the uh, first episode's already out. It's about Game of Thrones. So if you want to know what I think of Game of Thrones, uh, you're going to have to go there because we're never going to talk about it on this <laughs> podcast. You can find a link in the show notes or just Google the Parsec podcast at the Daily Dot. Yeah, the next episode will be up within a day or so of this one. And it's going to be a kind of panel discussion between people who have done really large scale fan projects, like putting on fanfic musicals and that sort of thing. So yeah, Parsec podcast, uh, that's the last of our pre-show announcements. I think we can now move on to the wonders of Batman. Okay, so we watched uh, the first Keaton Burton Batman movie together on vacation uh, a couple months ago, and you have seen these movies, I believe, many times yeah. over the course of many years, and I have never seen them before. So this was very exciting because you have been harassing me to watch them for <laughs> a long time. <laughs> And then I just watched Batman Returns last night in preparation for doing this podcast. Batman Returns uh, also stars Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, which is probably the thing it's most famous for and possibly the sort of most iconic image from these movies, except maybe Jack Nicholson as the Joker um, from the first movie. And this was really interesting for me because obviously I grew up with the Christopher Nolan Batman films um and i really love the dark knight i think it's totally a masterpiece but these films are very very different and very different from any 
superhero movie that's come out in the past, I don't know, 20 years? Like, it's been a long time since we've had anything like this. Or I mean, they are straightforwardly know, weird. Yeah, they're very odd in a in a very delightful way. And the most immediately noticeable thing about them is that they are so comic booky in a way that movies are not ever and superhero movies included at this stage i mean i don't know if any superhero movies before this were either i mean i think these are pretty unique and a lot of that has to do with i mean lower budget movies for sure because there were a bunch of low budget adaptations and the 1970s superman is basically a perfect superman movie but it's a lot more it's a lot more like a conventional blockbuster even though it's a really sweet well-made film because you don't really need to make superman weird in any way whereas batman is inherently super super weird and tim burton really understood the kind of operatic aspects so all the visual effects and the design and all of the kind of narrative themes are just incredibly gothic and have all these references to black and white silent movies from you know 1920s germany and stuff and it's like okay this is not an action movie (laughs) no there is very little action in both of them in fact in Batman Returns, which we will get into more later, it is 35 minutes until he, meaning Batman, really shows up. He does appear before then, but in a meaningful way, he really shows up 35 minutes into the two-hour movie. And I was like, wow, okay. And he's not really, he's not particularly heroic or effective in either of them. He's like more effective in the first film. Mm-hmm. because he has to defeat the joker like the the first film batman just to refresh your memories that's the one where jack nicholson plays the joker and he starts off as a gangster and uh gets dropped in a vat of you know magical green liquid that turns him into the joker and then he becomes really crazed and a maniac and the uh the love interest character is vicky vale who's a journalist and has some truly beautiful amazing costumes um which were provided by the actress's personal costumer that's kim Bassinger. Oh. And uh, she really, it's, it's a pinnacle of the 80s, this one. It was in 18, 1989, oh, yeah. so it just pipped right in at the end of the 80s. And <laughs> they've got all that kind of businessman excess and women in huge shoulder pads with floofy hair. And the design is really over the top because it's from that era of Tim Burton when, you know, it's the it's the Edward Scissorhands era. So his films look really amazing. And it's all just on kind of, plasterboard set so they've got all of the backgrounds of Gotham are painted on rather than it being computer generated or whatever and it just looks really false intentionally it looks like a very old school style of filmmaking and it works so much better I think than obviously I do like the Dark Knight movies probably not quite as much as Morgan does but one of the things I just find really disappointing about them is Christopher Nolan's designs for Gotham itself are super boring because it's just like oh here's the business district of Chicago and then you'll get some generic Uh, crime streets as well whereas Tim Burton is very much going straight to the comics and being like here's this weird wonderland of creepy monsters and everything looks like there's all these gargoyles and weird statues like in Batman Returns there's these two kind of like naked men statues that pull giant levers during the lever pulling ceremony to switch the Christmas lights on and it's like why are they there you know they just just (laughs) completely let loose with all this shit and it looks amazing (laughs) 
Well, that is, well, they reminded me of some of the um, design at Rockefeller Center, actually, the sort of Art Deco yeah. um, 20s. Look. I mean, it's absolutely that, you know. Yeah. Um, but that is getting back to the sort of German expressionist thing from the 20s and 30s that he's very clearly drawing on in both of these films, but in the second one in particular, watching that last night, I just kept thinking about Metropolis, the Fritz Lang film from, I don't remember what year. Actually, I have the tab open here. It is from 1927. It's um, uh, one of the sort of classic silent films. It was, built on, it was done on a huge sort of stage set and had massive numbers of extras, which is then sort of became unusual and was never sort of the way that American silent films were made. It was a very German thing. And has all of these weird uh, design elements. And there are other more specific resonances that, again, we can talk about more later. But it is clearly a visual parallel that he is going for. There are some moments in that movie with large groups of people or uh, penguins, in fact, that are obviously meant to yeah. mirror moments from Metropolis, which is just um, unbelievable. To be like, ah, oh, yes, the moment where all the penguins are moving obviously mimics this moment from this 1927 <laughs> Fritz Lang film, but like it obviously does. I mean, the, like, the secondary villain on? in Batman Returns is named after the German actor who played Nosferatu. There you go. Like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Um, but why don't we start with more of a discussion with the first Batman movie? Because I could talk about the second one all day because I just watched it. But I think it would be helpful to contextualize it a little bit with the first one. Because the first one is where we actually get to see more of Batman and Michael Keaton. Because he's not that much of a force in the second one, which is quite interesting. But that, I think, works because the first one sets him up quite strongly as a character. And then that allows them to step away from him more in the second film and to explore some of the other characters more. We were talking as we were watching that first movie, we were really amused talking about the casting of Michael Keaton as Batman. The wonderful, wonderful Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton would never in one million years get cast as Batman now if they were <laughs> rebooting it. Like, which I guess they are rebooting Batman again. But it... Like, it's such a wild decision for them to have cast him in that movie. He's not what you think of now, anyway, sort of in the, like, pop culture consciousness of, like, Bruce Wayne, like, sexy, you know, rich dude on a hill. He's already kind of balding in this movie. And he's kind of mumbly. Yeah. He is my favorite Batman, right? He is my favorite Batman and my favorite Bruce Wayne. But he, he is really peculiar because like even when you go through all the eras of Batman comics, obviously a lot of the more modern comics tend to make him more of an action figure. But there was always, even when it was sort of focusing on the detective side and the double agent stuff and all that um, and the double life stuff, there were always scenes where he'd be leaping onto a rooftop or whatever because that's, you know, his look, you know, he's got bat wings and shit. So... It's not like there was ever a point when they had kind of an uncool dad Batman from an aesthetic perspective. It's definitely like a square-jawed hero. And Michael Keaton, you know, he's unexpected. And he's great. He wears some bad jeans. I mean, that's our historical perspective of the 80s, but there's definitely some bad jeans. I just don't feel like they were cool then either, right? Because they were certainly like normal fashionable jeans, but they weren't 
what you'd be like, wow, he's James Bond. Like, James Bond no. is not wearing high-waisted dad jeans. No, no, no. <laughs> um, and he's kind of, he's vulnerable and he's just a bit of a disaster, which obviously all of the Batmans are. But in this one, you're very much just like he ought to be in therapy and he's yes. just failing all over the place. And because the suit is made of rubber, it's a lot harder to kind of take it seriously as him, wear- as him wearing a Kevlar vest or whatever. Whereas in the latter Batmans with Christian Bale and poor old Ben Affleck, obviously they are both meant to be human disasters in their personal life and they're really screwed up and that's their whole motivation. But they are inherently cool and you're meant to admire how badass they are. Yes. That's not something you do here. I don't think there's a single moment when Batman actually does something really cool. No, there might be in the first one. I can't remember. I mean, he like, crashes through a roof at one point to see yeah. Vicky Vale, and it's awesome, right? Um, but... <laughs> but it's not... The, no, it's not the same thing at all. No. And he's very likable, in a way. He's quite low-key. Even when he's Batmans being Bruce Wayne. Not. Yeah. Um... Which is interesting. It's not necessarily a bad approach to have Batman be not the most likable guy. Because I think that he's not... The Nolan Batmans, I don't think he's supposed to be, like, unlikable, but I don't think you're supposed to be like, wow, what a, like, fun dude, right? (laughs) Well, there's much more of a transition between the real Bruce Wayne and the fake Bruce Wayne. Because the fake one is this, you know, bimbo. And then the real one is really single-minded and works out all the time and has this heroic quest. Whereas in Tim Burton's Batman, there's very little difference in in terms of personality between the public Batman. Or no, there's very little difference in terms of performance between the public Batman and the private one. And the difference is that the private one just has this violent madness in his soul. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But... They also, I guess part of it is that he doesn't, there isn't as much of the, like, him appearing in public stuff. Like, they do a little bit of that, but he well, mostly just doesn't bother. the first one, there's a whole bother. sequence where he's at a party. Yeah, but then they, and that's how it opens, which is really interesting and, like, fun. But then it seems like he mostly is just like, I don't care about any of this. Like, I'm just gonna do my thing. And there's not as much of a sense of, it's not that it's not there, but there's so much more in the the Nolan ones of like his anguish and having to you know trick everyone into being like oh where's Bruce this week and like Michael Keaton's like whatever yeah it's also because <laughs> they need that there's it's so much easier to suspend your disbelief with Burton's Batman because none of it need to needs to make sense because right. all of the villains are cartoons and the heroes are cartoon and there's no really high tech stuff going on whereas all of Christopher Nolan's stuff is really realistic so you have to explain everything. Because yeah. you'll constantly be like, well, why don't people work out that he's actually Batman? It's like, in, in Tim Burton's Batman, it's like, the guy has a flock of penguins. Not, nothing makes sense. <laughs> exactly. They all just live in this, you know, it's all it's all about the concept of madness. So nothing really gels. Yeah. That being said, the first one does have the sort of classic superhero dilemma of, you know, he's in love with the girl, but she doesn't know that he's Batman. Which is has been done one million times. This is not a criticism; it's very effective here. But it is a sort of familiar story, reminding me a lot of the first Spider-Man, which does the exact. I mean, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. When I say the first Spider-Man, that is what I am actually thinking of, <laughs> because in my mind, that's what that means. Um, but uh, 
so there is that sort of um that dynamic between the public and private is going on there, but it's more of a personal situation as opposed to this sort of big existential, you know, drama. It's more of a small existential drama. And Kim Basinger is a journalist who's trying to work out what the deal is with Bruce Wayne because she likes him. She's basically just stalking him. It's like, that's fine. I also like that she sort of uncovers the fact that his parents were killed as children, which really surprised me when we rewatched it. Because I was like, well, obviously it's completely common knowledge that everyone knows that millionaire Bruce Wayne's parents were killed. Whereas when she finds out, they present it as really surprising hidden news. Because also yeah. it's like before the days of the internet, so why would people generally know that, I guess? Right. But she's like really surprised. And then she's like, oh, this really explains why he's so screwed up. And then her coworker is like, yeah, this guy's clearly really screwed up, which is, I, I just like that they point that out. Because, yes. <laughs> like, of course. Whereas in latter films, they don't, they kind of take it as red, but they also don't really delve into the fact that he's just really screwed up because they just yes. execute it all through violence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like he's simultaneously more of just like a dude. And also, it's acknowledged that actually this behavior is not normal. Yeah, it's just like all, when you right? find out that one of your friends is dating someone who's got like a really bizarre part of his past, and everyone would be like, okay, yeah, it's weird. And it's literally how it's like presented in the film is that she's got a weird boyfriend. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the movie is basically structured like a. I guess not like a standard for a superhero movie now because they're all origin stories for the most part, which is very boring. Well, it's but, an origin story for the Joker. Yes. And I really liked this movie a lot, but I found it a little bit slight and it's not really a criticism exactly, but it didn't um, didn't hugely stick with me. So we were getting ready to, to do this and I had to look on the Wikipedia page to sort of figure out like what had exactly happened because there were certain things that I remember quite vividly but I didn't really remember the plot and I think that that is partially because it is like a bad guy appears and then the hero has to defeat him and that's part of his like personal you know journey to uh, overcome that I mean I don't remember I also looked up the plot of Batman Begins because I don't remember what the fuck happens in that movie either right like this is not a this is a common situation. Um, but it makes sense for, for, as a sort of starting point for the story, I guess, because it does allow him to be the focus, which makes sense because it's called Batman, um, while also providing him with a nemesis who is the antithesis of him, which is how all superhero stories work. And it's kind of wild how well it works tonally because it is a really dark film and Jack Nicholson's performance is, you know, it's pretty disturbing. And the film at the time, I think both both of these films got kind of positive reviews, but not overwhelmingly so. And they both got criticised for being too dark for children, which is like, I don't know if it's true. It's hard to tell, really, because I definitely watched that as a young teenager and I don't feel like they're unsuitable for children, but they are also really dark. But... At the same time, the concept is just so wacky because the Joker's main plot involves him poisoning a bunch of cosmetics. And then if you use the cosmetics in a certain combination, you turn into a Joker person and go mad and your face turns into a rictus grin. And there is like one of the major confrontation scenes just involves him vandalizing an art gallery with his art goons. 
So it's really silly, but it also feels more adult than a lot of other superhero films because they just follow such a strict action blockbuster formula that you're like, this is clearly structured so a five-year-old can understand it. Yes. And this is before the days of CGI explosions. Yeah. So that's why they had to use real penguins. (laughs) And the RSPCA or whatever, not the RSPCA, whatever the American animal charity is, were not happy that they used a bunch of real penguins and they had to make sure that everyone knew that they were giving the penguins loads of ice and breaks. (laughs) Oh my god. The big behind that was the big behind the scenes deal for Batman Returns was are the penguins yeah. being treated well? And the big behind the scenes deal for Batman was that Jack Nicholson signed an excruciatingly complex contract that allowed him to like leave the leave work every day at four PM so he could go to the golf course or something. Like they all had to fit the film around Jack Nicholson's like millionaire of schedule. <laughs> How shocking. Yeah. The thing the scene I remember best from Batman actually was the scene where they go and like spray paint all over famous masterworks of art at the art gallery actually because to me that was like really traumatic <laughs> I was like no don't ruin the art this is really <laughs> terrible <laughs> but I mean that is a quite visceral uh, demonstration of the sort of rejection of society and its norms that is going on in the movie and indeed in all Batman films and i assume most sort of mainstream batman stories i have never read a batman comic so i cannot comment on all of them and i'm sure there's a lot of variety but the sort of classical batman thing is you know the maintaining of the social order right it's quite a conservative trope and there will be someone who has a desire to wreck the social order and in these cases also has like a gang of people who are misfits and then they're gonna like wreak havoc um and then they are stopped by batman which was interesting to me to think about because the nolan ones all do the same thing and have been criticized for being quite conservative but they're all like there is a pattern that they all are falling into right And then I thought about Batman v Superman, and I was like, there's, like, what was that movie even attempting to do? Like, there's nothing. Like, even The Dark Knight Rises, which we both hate, like, it's a bad movie, at least was trying to, like, do something. Batman v Superman, there's nothing at all. And I was like, oh. It was interesting to me watching Batman Returns, because we can kind of move on to that one now. I felt like I fully, like, grasped the batman mythos for the first time yes. i was like oh it's all making <laughs> because sense the whole thing is just so warped it's just a really really twisted movie like obviously there are civilians in danger but it's not a film where you're like they really have to go and save the civilians because the whole thing is just this bizarre kind of relationship between batman and the joker and the penguin and this weird businessman and it's all christmas yeah, great Christmas movie. <laughs> um, but that, again, is a, a movie of, like, the weird outsiders attempting to sort of overthrow society, and then that can't go on. And then Catwoman is, like, a completely interesting addition to that standard plot development. Yeah. Because Penguin 
is someone who's been sort of thrown out from society by his parents at the beginning because he has like weird deformities or whatever. And then he has his again like weird band of misfits who live under like in the sewers. Yes. Like, okay, with a bunch sure. of penguins. <laughs> with a bunch of penguins. As as happens, obviously. Um and But he's they... basically really simple. And the thing that makes him great is that Danny DeVito has such a peculiar performance and is like literally spewing green slime for half the film. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fine. He's really fun. Um and he doesn't want like he basically just wants to like sow chaos everywhere. And Christopher Walken, who's very extra in this movie, oh that's my how God. I kept sort I, of like thinking I of him. Adore Christopher Walken. And he looks so great in this. He's like really handsome and has all these really cool suits. <laughs> and large hair. Yeah, enormous um, hair. Tries to sort of co-opt him to destroy society from the inside. I suppose through yeah, you know, he's the Republican Party to the Penguins Trump, as many people exactly. have noxiously pointed out last year. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And so, obviously, he and Batman become natural enemies. But then, and that's a very sort of familiar story. But then Michelle Pfeiffer is playing Catwoman, who is doing something similar, but her sort of grievance with the social order, if you will, has to do with being a woman. And so then she's this chaotic force operating on a very different level. Like she's doing... Well, she's completely independent because other people are having this epic struggle between hero and villain. And she's literally like, she's a timid secretary who got fucked over by her shitty boss. And then she turned into Catwoman, which is not necessarily portrayed as her getting any kind of superpowers it's more like she's potentially resurrected by some cats and this because everyone in batman is quote unquote mad and the whole thing is like oh the villains all just get sent to arkham asylum then that's kind of what happens to her which is like suddenly she's ridding herself of her more timid personality and she's like sewing herself a sexy outfit but at the same time it's all about her own empowerment to use a very overused word and it's all about her getting to fulfill her desires and act in a really outrageous way and they somehow against all laws of hollywood managed to make it just really cool and it's all about her own story and her own characterization and michelle pfeiffer's performance is just incredible like her voice is really strange um there's actually an article by angelica bastian at vulture which i'm going to link to in the show notes which is all about michelle pfeiffer's performance in this movie and it's great yeah she's amazing and in a lot of ways is i think she's almost the protagonist i think she's not she isn't the protagonist but is in a lot of structural ways the protagonist of the movie because one of the remarkable things about the film is that batman doesn't have an arc right sort it's not that nothing happens to him but from point a to point b it's not like he has some massive personal epiphany or moment of you know change or whatever he doesn't fucking show up until 35 minutes into the movie basically because he's done all of that in the first one so they evidently were like well this doesn't matter so we're just gonna do this other thing i mean there are three bad guys in this movie right which is what they did in spider-man 3 the original spider-man 3 um and it was a fucking disaster because that shouldn't work like you shouldn't be able to have three villains in a film it's too many and i think the 
way they made it work in this one is obviously that Christopher Walken and Danny DeVito, the Penguin, are basically the same. It's like the same plot line. But also, they bas- essentially deleted the protagonist, except in the fact... I mean, he's in the movie, but he doesn't have anything to do, really, except And also, Catwoman there. isn't really trying to do bad stuff. She's trying to do crimes, and she's selfish, but she's not... I mean, she's meant to be monstrous in terms of her transformation, but she's not a moral monster in the same way as the actual villains. Yes. So it's this kind of tragic love story between her and Batman, which is as it should be. Yes. Oh, so good. Um, But that's, again, the thing about her kind of being this chaotic force, right, is that her grievance is presented as more legitimate and so she's doing some things that are like quote unquote bad like she blows up a you know department store or something but she can't just be dismissed as like a crazy person and so then the movie can't like there's something complicated about that character that the movie can't quite do away with and i think that that's to its benefit like it it's not like everything doesn't have to be explained away in a neat box like there's a lot that's sort of going on under the surface that's really interesting because the like the problems of women in society cannot be explained away in a movie right like it's too much and the ending of the movie has to be in some way dissatisfying because she and bruce like spoiler alert can't like run away together and live happily ever after because it like life isn't that easy right but but it works within the framework of it being a gothic story yeah because it is it's so gothic like probably more than the first one because you have this kind of doomed romance element and you know she's been wronged by society and it sent her mad and careening through the halls of her castle in a white gown kind of thing except actually it's a black latex cat suit but um, <laughs> yeah but also like in terms of her just the amount of screen time she gets. I'm pretty sure we see more of her as an individual person than we do of any other female lead in any other superhero movie. Because, you know, you get even, like, short scenes. Like, the scene where she, after she gets killed and she comes back to life and she comes back to her house. And Michelle Pfeiffer is kind of lurching around, like, the undead. And she's kind of talking to her cats in her house, like, the kind of archetypal crazy cat lady. And then she sews herself her catsuit. And it's just like, everything looks really amazing. You get such an evocative idea of what she's feeling. And then obviously we, I mean, we do see other scenes with her by herself, but it's just like, it just, not only is she really interesting, which is quite rare for the female lead of a male-led superhero movie, but she just gets this whole arc to herself, more so than Batman, like we said. I mean, I think she's the best female character I've ever seen in a superhero movie. No disrespect to Wonder Woman, who's very wonderful, no pun intended. I mean, she's but, more interesting, obviously. Yeah. Like, she's just like, super fucking weird. <laughs> it's, it's so... And it, it's engaging with sexism mm-hmm. in a way that Wonder Woman doesn't really want to do. I mean, the main... Well, I think that's unfair that, to Wonder Woman. But, like, Wonder well, Woman can't do that in the same way because it's it's inherently a really positive message. Well, the thing that the main criticism that I saw of Wonder Woman that I thought was interesting and fair was that she gets into the real world and her sort of main like issue and mission is like 
I'm going to help humanity. And there's not really any engagement with issues of sexism, right? Like the suffrage movement was going on at that time. And there's no mention of that. She just immediately goes into the, the war, which is all men. And like, I love that movie. I think it's really great. And that is an, like, I think they do a really good job with it. But it's her sort of being put in the context of humanity as opposed to like men. There's, there's no real engagement with once she gets off that island of like sexism. Um, and that's fine the movie's doing a lot of great things but for me personally i think that this is a more interesting and complex exploration of a female character because she is in that world and dealing with all of this shit and then it does kind of make her nuts but she then you know does something about it and one of the sort of parallels to Metropolis is that the only female character in that movie is this very beautiful, virtuous woman who is a sort of preacher um, preaching to the masses of workers. And I can't actually remember if she's trying to placate them or try to have them rise up. Like, I don't recall, <laughs> but it doesn't matter for the purposes of this anecdote. But the sort of bad guys get her and basically turn her into a machine. I think that she was trying to make them rise up. Yeah, that's what I think so. And then that's they turn her also. into a robot. Yeah, they turn her into a robot and she turns into this like sexy lady who then all of the sort of rich men of Metropolis are totally fixated by her or whatever eventually she turns back into her good self and finds her boyfriend again and it's fine but there's the really horrifying scene um near the beginning where the evil you know mad scientist is capturing her and it's this whole thing right but this movie does a very similar thing but She's the one who sort of transforms herself, and instead of turning into a sexy woman for men's consumption, she turns into a very, like, sexy person. Like, the outfit, as you were saying, is obviously designed to make her look sexy, but it's not for men's consumption at all. In fact, she's a very threatening figure. Yeah. But it's obviously meant to reference that film, and I think it's such an interesting reversal. Um, I like when she spits out the bird. Yes. <laughs> and the movie itself, I was talking about this on Twitter last night, is a sexy movie. Which is yeah. like bizarre in the context of Hollywood. It's because it literally movies. is just like it took one look at Batman. It's like, okay, it's two people like wrestling with each other in fetish suits. Right. So, because if you try, if it's like if you make like another Batman movie and it's like it's really like stolid and serious, and no one's making a comment about the fact that it's someone who's dressed up in like a, I mean, even when it is like a Kevlar one, it's like it's still super weird. It's like right. literally you're just a furry, which is like absolutely nothing wrong with that. But you've definitely not acknowledged the fact that Batman is a furry. Right. And in this one, it's like they're definitely furries, but they're like murder furries. Right. <laughs> well, this is also the thing, right? Of like she and Batman. They have this romance going on where they're 
not in the suits, and then when they are in the suits, which of course is like the apex of superhero romance. Like, I mean, it's wonderful. All that you want, like, oh, so good. (laughs) Um, But this is the thing: like, Hollywood will just never understand Michael Keaton, as we were saying. Love him. It's not like you look at Michael Keaton or like, ooh, like, wow, what? Like, I'm, you know, I have to like fan myself now, right? But they have such chemistry. It's directed in such a like compelling way. It's so restrained. And they both have weird issues. So they're both attracted to each other. They both have weird issues. And the movie is actually trying to be sexy mm-hmm. in a way that's not exploitative. It knows that it's about sex. There are some references that are like extremely explicitly about sex that actually surprise me because that's not what Hollywood I was surprised when now we, we rewatched Batman together and Vicky Vale and Bruce Wayne just straight up had sex on the first date. And I was like, yeah. I'm really surprised. Yeah. Movies are so puritanical now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when he first meets Selena Catwoman, when she's at um, Christopher Walken's office, not in the cat suit, but it's after she sort of had this transformation and she's kind of acting nuts and he's really turned on by her because she's acting kind of like a crazy person and i was like (laughs) this is interesting and then they sort of start making out on the couch later and she's like clawing at him because she's catwoman and he sort of is weirded out and like moves her hand but he's also again clearly turned on by it and i was like no hollywood film would ever do this now like there is just no fucking way like not at all and I think it's because it's actually for grown-ups, which is probably why the reviews were all like, oh my god, the children, like, what? how will they deal with this? And the answer is that kids just don't know what's going on. So, no. like, you're just going to end up with some weird subconscious thing, like, right, 10 exactly. years later. But <laughs> so to be honest, you're going to get it somewhere. So Right. But I just appreciated it so much because it is so not what happens now. And I tweeted something last night saying, like, you know, was Batman Returns the last sexy superhero movie and then had like an asterisk and said like only, you know, sexy superhero movie and a couple people replied saying like, oh, you know, Thor or like Wonder Woman. And it's like they're not because like Thor and Wonder Woman, the know, main characters convincingly seem like they're attracted to each other, but they're not sexy movies like having and also it's like having like a shirtless man in the film. It's not like it doesn't make it sexy. Right. right? There. Right. There's a difference between having a compelling romance which i think both those films do and having attractive people in them yeah it's a difference between like transformers and carol you know (laughs) (laughs) not really a comparison i'm ever going to make in any other circumstance but like transformers is full of like semi-naked women and uh carol you know (laughs) you know what i'm saying (laughs) wow we have really made it we've taken a journey today But there's not, like, in Thor especially, right? And, like, I love Thor. I think it's a great movie. And I love the women in that. And I think the romance is super charming. But even though you do get the sense that, like, those two characters really like each other, there isn't, like, a steamy moment between them, right? Which is fine. The movie does not need that at all. But it's just doing a totally different thing or something like the first captain america movie has a great romance but it's as pure as the driven snow because steve rogers is like completely just like nothing going on there at all 
with it's Batman Returns. Think a lot about with Iron Man, right? Because Iron Man's yeah. whole thing is that he's a playboy, and you, you, the first film especially, really strongly implies that he has dozens of one night stands. Yeah. Um, but it's just so sexless, and it's very much of the kind of the school of thought where it's just a cool achievement for a man, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is too bad because that movie also has a great romance in it. Yeah. Like he and Gwyneth. I mean, God knows. I've probably said this in the podcast before, but even the worst Marvel movie, if they put Pepper Potts in it, I'm just like, I'm (laughs) so excited. I love Pepper Potts so much. And I know that like, I shouldn't, because I mean, right? It's just it's just pure charm, right? But like the character herself, it's like, oh, she owns an arms dealership, and she's Fine. played by the woman who runs Goop. Like it's you know, it, but it works. It works for me. I love her. <laughs> I love her too. It's okay. But yeah, Batman Returns is actually it's about grown-ups who are really attracted to each other and unfortunately happen to be trying to sort of kill each other but also sort of sleep with each other at the same time yeah. and i was it's like the crimson oh, peak of superhero great. yes yes and uh the ending is perfect yeah so i don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it but it's sort of related to all these things we're talking about and it was just i was so i was so happy I was just like, how did a bunch of men make this? I don't understand how this happened. Just... Well, the writer is the guy who wrote Heathers. Yes, which I've never seen, astonishingly. It's very good, and it's wild to consider that he wrote both of those movies, but also once you find out, you're like, oh. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They had like a blockbuster guy come and polish up the plot for him, but you know. Yeah. Also, random fact about this movie. I don't know how many of our listeners are <laughs> fans of the cinema of Xavier Durand. But I went to an event with him at MoMA many years ago, and it was a really interesting thing, actually. People, uh, like, places should do this more. They had him pick five clips from, like, the films that had influenced him the most. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just, like, showing clips of his films. They did, did do a little bit of that, too. But I think this is actually way more interesting because, like, you know, I just went to one of these things with Jane Campion, which was amazing. And they showed clips of her work, which was, you know, and then she talked about them, which was great. But it's so much more revealing to have a filmmaker For sure. talk about the stuff that yeah. they influenced them, right? And one of the clips that he chose was the clip where she comes home after having been knocked out of the window or whatever. And is like, you know, trashes her apartment. And, and all of I his just... movies are about really troubled women. Yep. I was like, this is really great. And he was he was quite defiant about it. His other choices were, let me think, uh, Titanic, Jumanji, uh, some Amadovar movie, and Friday Night Lights. <laughs> I was like, this is great. He was like, well, I think his really films are all like it's like a it's like a ten dollar budget movie. It's four hours long, filmed in like one to one square ratio, and it's about like a mother feuding with her daughter in a trailer park. It's like oh, every one of his films. <laughs> he was like, I think you're really most influenced by the things you see as a kid. I was like, that's fair. That is absolutely true, and I love yeah. that he was freely admitting that. <laughs> the last clip they showed, I think, was Jumanji, and I was like, this is sublime. <laughs> Wow. Everyone in the audience is like, maybe they saw Jumanji when they were babysitting once. <laughs> I mean, I've seen Jumanji a bajillion times because my littlest brother, one of the movies he watched 17,000 times in a row was Jumanji. So let me tell you, I've seen that film, but I was like, this is... <laughs> but anyway, my, my first association with Batman Returns is uh, Xavier. So 
I was thinking of him last night. But uh, great film. Love Michelle Pfeiffer. She's just, I need to see more of her stuff now. I've definitely seen her in something, but she's sort of one of those like mythic actresses who sort of vanished after. Well, we're going to see her for next week's movie. We are, which is Mother! Exclamation point by <laughs> Darren Aronofsky. Just a really great guy. What a great guy. Oh, Seems like a really nice person. Yeah, not a fan of his personally. Yeah, he's terrible. I find his work very interesting though. And uh, he did Black Swan. Yep. Also, another film. Um, he was just a super great guy to his employees. Yep. Um, it's really good though. And uh, the wrestler, which people might have seen, which is actually an absolutely—that's my favorite film of his, probably. It's uh, oh my god, it's so good. Um, but this movie is very buzzy. Yeah, I'm extremely curious weird. about Mother because there's clearly just you can't tell what it's about from the trailer really yeah i've tried to avoid reading much of anything it's getting very good reviews out of the venice film festival jennifer lawrence does some acting i guess in this movie coming out this weekend so we will be discussing that next week again read john le Carre's new book for and a few weeks uh, listen to my new podcast the parsec podcast at the daily dot yes Thank you, as always, for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.